gentlemen. We have a special treat for you today. We have the one, the only. Welcome to the State Lines Network. Hey friends, welcome to episode 9 of the Boldly Going Podcast. I am your host, Jason Sowell, and as always, this is the Boldly Going Podcast. Creative, brilliant, inspirational people of the universe on planet Earth. And I am so excited about this episode. It's with my friend Russell Johnson. Uh, Russell is an incredible, incredible man. I've learned so much from this guy uh, over the years that I've known him. Uh, he has made me a better man. He's made me more sensitive. He's taught me how to love people better. And um, he, we talk a little bit about that. It gets deep, so get ready. Uh, Russell is the uh, director of Urban Young Life here in Tampa, Florida. He's a mentor. He's a speaker. Uh, just an all-around incredible guy. Uh, he does great things for our community here in the Tampa Bay area. And uh, the title of this episode is You Can't Fight Love. And this guy models that every day. You can't fight love. He is, he is a lover of people. He uh, has taught me a lot about race and loving people that are different than you. And um, just really good. In this episode, uh, it gets pretty deep. It gets, it gets pretty serious. Uh, Russell... Uh, really speaks to a lot of a lot of different issues um, that I just wanted to I wanted to talk about and I wanted you to hear about uh, and he embodies something uh, that he calls or I don't remember if I heard it from him but he embodies something called quiet strength and man he's he's so good so I can't wait for you to get into this episode listen to what he has to say and hopefully learn something from it and uh, and take that with you and boldly go and live your life every day as well. Uh, as always, we are a part of the State Lines Podcast Network, and if you haven't checked out the State Lines Podcast Network, uh, shame on you. First of all, uh, you should. You should definitely go see the other <clears> – <throat> check out the other podcasts on on the uh, network uh, because they're, they're great. There's so many uh, fantastic things on there, but not only podcasts but articles as well. So you should check out the articles, um, do some reading, do some listening. And, uh, you know, hopefully get better and, and, uh, and not that you're bad people, but hopefully be, you know, maybe you'll learn something and it'll, it'll make you even better. Um, and thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Thank you for all the feedback. Uh, I am honored that you would listen you would take the time to uh, listen uh, to the people that I converse with. And really you're just getting a glimpse of my conversations um, because it's, it's pretty just raw conversations. I like to have a people and it's like you're sitting in the room. So, uh, thanks for joining us in the room and listening to these conversations. And, uh, before we, before we get into the episode, uh, check, don't forget, check out state-lines.com. Uh, also you can check out my organization, engagecurrent.org. See what all we do there, get involved, um, with something in your community, hopefully through us, but uh, find some find some way to get involved in your community. And then also you can uh, learn more about Ru what Russell does, who he is, if you go to uh, tampaurban.younglife.org. It's tampaurban.younglife.org. Definitely check them out. They're doing great things to mentor um, uh, young people in communities, especially in urban communities with what Russell does. So check that out. Um, Awesome. So uh, here you go. Get uh, put on your thinking caps, as they used to say when we were kids, and uh, get ready for a pretty, pretty cool episode with my friend Russell Johnson.
able to teach me things that your traditional black um, child growing in Sulphur Springs will never learn. The fact that I grew up in an all-white community helped because I was able to acclimate and learn the language of the community that was around me and learn the social skills, the social, everything that came with a white community right. that I needed to learn. And then the third step was really having people that opened doors for me. And that was some um, white people that used that privilege to introduce me and connect me. Hmm. Interesting. That's what my post was about on Facebook the other day is white privilege is, is real. But instead of running from it, why don't you embrace it and use it to help out other people? Mm. Interesting. Which yeah. is, which is, I mean, because you have white privileges. And so instead of utilizing that privilege and saying, no, 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 and getting defensive about it like a lot of white males do, use that privilege then to create opportunities for others that don't have the same privilege. Yeah. And open a door and access to them. Yeah. That's a good point. Like and and I, I don't think a lot of people do that well at all. They just, they're so in denial of it that yeah, they have to embrace it first and say, yes, I have privileges. And how am I going to use those privileges to help other people is the second question. Yeah, that's a, man, that's a hard, that's a hard one. Yeah. All right. I'm going to come back to that. Okay. Because it's a little bit of what I was Yeah, talking. we got to get to the podcast. So, so. Yeah. So it's actually already recording. I like to just kind of get a raw oh, okay. intro right. stuff. Um, so... Uh, welcome everybody to the to the podcast, Boldly Going, what I call creative, brilliant, inspirational people of the universe on planet Earth. And uh, today we're here with my friend Russell Johnson, who honestly, Russell, you're one of the smartest people that I know. And uh, <laughs> I'm making faces probably, with that. I probably say that to every guest that could. Okay. No, but le- legitimately, you are. Um, there's a few people in my life that really sh- that really. Uh, stretch my thinking that's that uh make me view things in a different way that i didn't that it, you know before and you're you're one of those people so thank you for that and that's kind of why i wanted to have you on the podcast so um because i the reason i started this podcast is i wanted people to hear stories like yours of people okay. that are i encounter a lot of people that they're either very negative about life they're mm-hmm. negative about humanity they're very um they just, you know, they're they're working a job or doing something that they hate, and they are very just blinded by all the stuff in their life that keeps them from doing the things that they mm-hmm. love or the thing that they're really passionate about. And there's always excuses. And I wanted to hear stories of people like you that doing the thing you love despite whatever obstacles might have been or continue to be in your way. Great. So Great. that's what I call boldly going. So we're in my home in Ewar City. Um, You'll probably hear some construction vehicles going by because they, uh, I can never figure out which road is open every day when I leave my house because they're working so much. Yeah, it's hard to get around Ybor City all the time. Yeah. So, uh, thanks for being on the podcast, Russell. I really appreciate it. Uh, so get, let's hear a little background from you. You run Urban Young Life in Tampa, Florida. Uh, talk about that a little bit. What is that? Well, I'm the area director for Tampa Urban Young Life. I've been in this capacity for the last 14 years. And it really gives me a hands-on approach to working with youth, middle school and high school kids at the ground floor. A lot of the kids that we work with are kids who've grown up in generational poverty. They've never seen anyone have success in their family or break out of that generational poverty cycle where they, um, where they continue to be poor after graduating high school or if they graduate from high school. And so for me as an urban director or a young life director, 
we do the core components of Young Life, but we also have added a lot of things to that to really help kids where they're at in Tampa. Tampa's a very hard city to work in. It's um, yeah, we talked about this before. Though. Yeah, they they have one. They just have a very. Um, it's it literally is a glass ceiling here, mm-hmm. and unless you know how to access that glass ceiling or even um, are ever given a hammer to it, you don't know how to break out of it. And so a lot of our kids feel like there's no place for them here in Tampa to ever grow up, and there's no future for them. Interesting. Yeah, that. So I want to talk a little bit more about that in a second, and that's this is part of the reason why I want to have you on the podcast because mm-hmm. it, up to this point, most people um, that I've interviewed, you know, it's all based around I consider them boldly going because of what they're doing, mm-hmm. uh, in the sense of like their job, the the passion that they're pursuing as far as their career stuff like that. There's one other person, uh, Natalie, that was on the podcast, and our, our conversation was a little more about. Uh, what she's doing, but as a female starting a business and <clears throat> culturally what that looks like for her. And there's there's a few different areas that I feel like just by living and existing, you fall in the category of boldly going because every day your life is a bold step towards living. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you as an African-American male growing up in the United States and all and in Tampa, as you said, uh, every day that you do, you live your life, that you work your career, I feel like is a bold step. It is in a lot of ways because I constantly have to step out of my own comfort zone or um, and go into new ones that I'm not traditionally used to um, being in. I grew up in a middle class community where it was um, an all white community, mm-hmm. and so I became quite comfortable with that community. I. Then um, went to the University of Tampa, which really reflected a lot of the community I grew up in. I didn't know you went to the University of Tampa. I did. I graduated in 1993. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so um, a lot of the kids when I went to college, they didn't even know how to work an iron or ever turn on a washing machine because their maid or nanny always did it for them. Yeah. And so they would um, come and pay me to teach them how to turn on a washing machine, which is really nice because um, (laughs) when you're a poor college student, any money is, is, um, is good money. Yeah. So, uh, so yes, it was, that's where I went to school. And so all of a sudden then to be put into the inner city and work with a community and a population that I didn't grow up around was quite a stretch for me because I didn't feel like I belonged there at first. And I felt like I almost had to fake something Mm -hmm. in order to try to fit in. And I'll never forget one of the clients I first worked with when I was a case manager told me, you know, Russell, why don't you just be the real you and let the community accept you for who you are instead of trying to force something that is not really who you are. Interesting. And that was a great wake up call to me because this whole time I'm thinking I got to buy the baggiest jeans. I got to go in um, and look a certain part. I got to mm-hmm. wear shirts that have graffiti written on them and, and come off as a homeboy in a sense yeah. to them when all they were saying is we want just people who are real and who can be mm-hmm. themselves here. And so that was my first kind of identity crisis in Tampa that I went through of who was I in the community that I was working in and did I have to change or was I willing to, um, or were they willing to just accept me who I am? Then the second part of that was, of course, um, in my job is I then have to walk into the primarily white Caucasian world to look for funding and to Mm -hmm. look for board members. And not only that, but the rich white Caucasian world. 
Correct. Which I knew, which the good part was growing up in an all white community, I knew a lot of the etiquette. I knew the um, proper things to say and what not to say and how to mm-hmm. appear. And, um, and I knew that there was a certain image I had to portray. So it's literally like, you know, then putting that back on that image of you. Yeah. You can't be the real you around them, which the inner city was saying, just be the real you. Oh, wow. Where that community is saying, you know, you got to fake it a little. You got to put on an air. You have to, um, you have to create a resume for yourself at all times. Yeah. Where the inner city is saying, there's no resume needed. Just be yourself. Yeah. Interesting. That's a, wow. I've never thought about it in that way, but that's true. I know we've, we've talked before in the past of just rooms that you've been in that you, Mm -hmm. it's as long as you've been doing this, we started, uh, I, when I worked for a church in 2000, early 2000s, uh, and we started doing some work in Sulphur Springs, and then fast forward years later, 2008, when we started Current, mm-hmm. started doing a laundry project, I mean, you're the person I came to in Sulphur Springs because I knew Sulphur Springs a little mm-hmm. bit, and I knew that that's one area that I know that needs help and we can work mm-hmm. in, so I'm going to go to Russell because Russell's been in that community forever doing mm-hmm. work. Uh it's fascinating to me that you still have to walk into rooms and prove who you are. Within um, which world, though? Well, are, in the inner on, city or in the no, no, not on the inner city side. On the on the the white, you know, I'm walking into a room of people that potentially will give to my organization, and they're a different race than me, and they have a lot of money, um, and that you still. <laughs> It's almost like you said, even if, even with your resume, you could yes. on a piece of paper, you could go, here's, here's what I've done. Here's my track record. Here's all the references. Here's you a bike still, ministry. Here's, yeah, you still, um, not me specifically, cause I won't get you anywhere, but you yeah. still have to call somebody like me yes. to vouch for you. That's correct. That's correct. Because of the fact that I am a black male, I realize that there are already misconceptions and, and, and to be honest with you, these misconceptions are not something that necessarily were created by the white community, but it was created by a lot of, um, lot of factors. You have the media, first of all, Mm. when every news story in our local news has nothing but negative stories about the black community, about black individuals, robbery, whatever it is um, that are shown throughout the evening. So that's the first image. That's strike one. The second strike then would be um, the rap and hip hop community and the images that are put out there of um, young black males and older black males and, um, and that type of thing. And then you look at the third area, it's sports. And you see bad representation in the black community and you see a lot of um, irresponsibility and yeah. other things. And so if that's the only image that's ever put out there of the black community and black young men and males, then I have to then work twice as hard as I ever did in order to win somebody over. And first of all, trust me. And then to learn that I am somebody that they can believe in and that is going to do the work and be responsible with their money. Yeah. Why do you think? Uh, why do you think it's not the same way on the other side? As a white male, you mean? Yeah. Well, that's because um, I don't have to work. I mean, some ways I have to work, depending on if I'm connected to the mm-hmm. person that has the bad reputation. I have to work to start, but I don't typically have to walk into a room full of those same people and prove myself the same way that you do. Because when a white person does something negative, the um, our country does not then they do not become the representative for all white people. 
And I'll give you an example of that. Jesse Jackson is one of them. Mm-hmm. People are constantly saying he's a representative for the black people. Mm-hmm. He's not my representative, mm-hmm. but yet um, he becomes a representative for all black people. So when he says something mm-hmm. wrong, all of a sudden I have to then apologize and explain what he meant. Yeah. And, they, and people look to me for that. Where when um, when Donald Trump says something wrong and something racist, they do not come to you and say, "So what does your boy Donald mean by this?" <laughs> yeah, that yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Where where when a black person says something in a media format, all of a sudden people are coming to me as though I'm an expert with Barack Obama and something he just said. Right. And when I have no more insight than you do on what he just said. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. You're right. No one asked me uh, what David Duke what feels. Yeah, anybody. Yeah, and, and so unless I know them personally, like it, if they know that I'm connected to them, they might exactly. ask. But but people are more um, likely to to think of the terms of all black people feel this way just because one person might have said that. Hmm. And it's unfortunate, but in our society, their racism still is alive. Yeah, and and so there is still, and there's also a lot of ignorance as well. A lot of the people that yeah. I do encounter, um, and this is nothing against them, but they don't have, they have very limited exposure to black friends, yeah. to black people. They, the only black person they might see on a weekly basis is their nanny or their house cleaner. Right. And so um, their image and their worldview is very narrow. Yeah. And, and so it's really, I also feel it's part of my responsibility to change their worldview and to help them to see another side of um, things that they might not have seen before. Hmm. And so my my role as a Christian, I can't get defensive about ignorance. And yeah. and, and one of the things that has helped me early on in this is I stopped looking at all people as adults now. Hmm. Okay. I start looking at them more like sixth graders who don't know what the hell they're doing. And I have to go in and tell them different by the way I act and how I demonstrate to them. Wow. Yeah. And when you look at every adult as a sixth grader, it just changes your love level for them because the things that you wouldn't put up with with a sixth grader or a fifth grader, you definitely won't put up with an adult, but you won't scold them and you won't, um, you will not cast them off. You would actually sit with that sixth grader and be a little more patient and, and explain things to them and help love them through it. When you start thinking of adults that way, it helps you to overcome that bitterness and you love people through it. Mm. Through their ignorance and intolerance. Interesting. That's a brilliant. You should probably put them in the category of a toddler. <laughs> some you have to. Some, some are fifth some or five year olds that just yeah. that don't play well together and they like to have temper tantrums. Yeah. And, and there's no way that I would sit there and yell at my um, my three year old grandson that way. I show him love, grace, and compassion. That's the same compassion I have to show to the adults. Yeah. Man, that's fascinating. So let me play devil's advocate for just a second. Oh, please uh, do. On on the flip side, um, when you're, and you're talking about um, you know people come to you because yep, I'm a black man, President Obama or whoever, whatever quote unquote black representative says a thing, they come to me and ask ask you because they associate you in that way. Is not the same view exist the other way around from black communities looking at white people and for police for example Mm -hmm. one white police officer does something stupid he shoots a kid whatever the case may be um does it not get 
that that stereotype get applied to all? I agree. Yes. From that, it can. It can very easily because ignorance is ignorance. Period. No matter which way you look at it, and no matter what race you are. Correct. Matter, yeah. Yeah, and so the the whole thing is a lot of um, you got to remember a lot of the young black youth in, in the inner city, the only interaction they've ever had with white males has been um, they are the authority figure and I am um, under them, mm. under their control. Yeah. That goes all the way from the classroom. It's a teacher who's the one who's in authority and it's a white male teacher. That may be their first introduction to it. Mm. Um, from there on out, it's managers, it's bosses, it's, um, it's, you know, the police come into our neighborhood, they're white males, they're in a position of power and authority. Yeah. And so the more that they keep viewing white males as that, then that stereotype and that stamp is going to be continually placed upon them. Yeah. And until that is removed and they start seeing white males as more of an equal and, and, um, and on that level, then it will open up that bridge for communication and more of a, a greater understanding. That's why I enjoy seeing things like the basketball um, police officers come into the community right. and not even wearing necessarily their police <clears throat> fatigue, but just wearing some shorts and a t-shirt and going out there and playing with the kids. Yeah. It just, that's a game changer right there because it, create, it breaks down that I'm an authority yeah. And makes it more of I'm here just to get to know you. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's an interesting thing that you bring because I grew up in a law enforcement family. Mm-hmm. My my dad, grandfather, a couple of uncles, several cousins. You know, so much law enforcement that I grew up in. And I grew up with a certain perspective, uh, not of. I didn't grow up with a with a racist perspective. Uh, my family was very. Uh, very much. I was fortunate because of where I grew up that my family was very equal with you treat a person based on who they are, mm-hmm. not based on what somebody else did or <clears throat> what color they are or anything like that. <clears throat> and But just from a, from a police perspective, they have to deal with people every day. Their job is dealing with people at their worst. Yes. They deal with the worst of society at their worst. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can make you very jaded after a while. Uh and at some point along the line, I remember my, my dad and my grandfather, there was always talk, there was always talks of like walking a beat, which was mm-hmm. kind of an old school style of police uh, work where they were literally walking neighborhoods. Yeah. They were on foot, walking sidewalks, walking through the city. Nowadays, you have them mostly in, in cars, driving through neighborhoods. Which is intimidating. Um, <clears throat> yeah, which is absolutely intimidating. And some of that may be on purpose mm-hmm. because they're... You know, some would argue that the intimidation factor needs to be there for for law to be mm-hmm. law and order to to happen. You know, um, but I had an interesting conversation. So I'm a chaplain with the TPD now, and I had a just kind of a quick, interesting conversation with uh, the major that is over the district that I live in mm-hmm. uh, in Ybor City, and he's an African American male as well. Uh, and I told him that I live in Ybor City, and he goes, "Oh, it's great." You know, he's kind of talking about stuff. He's like, "You know, you'll see, you'll see. Uh, hopefully, you'll see more of the guys down there walking around on foot, not in their vehicles." Uh, so I'm trying to take him back to old school style uh, because it's less threatening. Mm-hmm. It's it's more inviting. You're more apt to talk to that officer or treat that officer differently, and vice versa. Um, when you're standing there physically with them, not sitting in a car. Yeah. Uh, 
and if there's something, if something's wrong, they're more apt to approach you mm-hmm. on foot than they are to approach you in your vehicle, uh, which I thought was really fascinating. It was an interesting psychology to that. There's a lot of truth to it because when you when you look at a police car, it says call nine one one. It doesn't tell you please please approach this officer and talk mm. to them. It just immediately directs you somewhere else. So you're not even a, it, it's saying immediately on the car, don't talk to me. Yeah. Just call this in and, and get away from me. That yeah, that's a fascinating observation. I've never thought about that. Where if it had the the personal police officer's phone number on there, and it said and they something like call that, me then, and some things. then it would be different. But it just says oh, call nine one one. I wonder if I'm in, in speculating and theorizing about stuff that I have no control over. But I wonder, uh, much like on on fighter jets where mm-hmm. they put the they put the 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 pilot's name and yeah. rank and like their Goose name, Maverick you know, and, yeah. on the on the actual neck plane next to the cockpit. I just made a Top Gun reference. <clears throat> yeah, you did. I like it. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, I wonder. I wonder if they did that with police cars. I think it would. I think that would be a game changer. If it's yeah. like Anthony um, Armstrong, University of Tampa, class of whatever, mm-hmm. and just that little information. Yeah. It would make it probably a little more user friendly because um, I'll be honest with you, I've seen some crimes or some things going down before, and I wanted to go up and just talk to a police officer, but I just looked at the side of the car and said nine one one, and I was just like, oh, forget it. By the time that I I get in touch with somebody, they're going to be gone. Yeah, I'm not even going to bother. Yeah, and and it's sad, <laughs> but it's just. But if I had somebody personally there on a bike or whatever, and I said, hey, right down here, I need you for a minute. Yeah, I would have done it. In yeah. a heartbeat. Yeah, that's understandable. And, and conversely, I understand, I guess, probably from my family side, I understand the uh, the standoffishness as mm-hmm. well. You know, a lot of officers. I've, I've learned uh, there are certain things I can say when, I'm, when I talk to a police officer that will tell them I'm, I'm part of the family, so mm-hmm. to speak, quote unquote, you know, and they'll drop their guard. Yeah. Um, and I get it in some ways because... Again, like I said, they're dealing with people at their worst all the time. And a lot of times when someone approaches them, uh, it's not always just, hey, nice to see you. I'm glad you're out here walking around. It's, it's uh, either you know, a lot of times out of anger or it's out of uh, there is something wrong or they want something. And officers just by nature of their job are constantly looking for the angle of what, what know, do you want? What do you want? What do you have in your hands? They're looking at your body language, if your hands are in your pockets. Mm-hmm. What do you have in your pocket that you're well that one you of the hurt me? One yeah. of the things I've um, I always teach my teenagers I work with is first of all, how to one time I'll, I'll share a funny story mm-hmm. with you. We were um, driving in the Young Life van and um, I got pulled over by a police officer. And um, and so I said, okay, okay, guys. With the, ki- with the kids in the van? With the kids in the van. There's okay. 12 of them. Maybe I shouldn't admit this on camera. <laughs> but, um, and so he had said that I blew through a, a, a stop sign. Now, on the other hand, I had 11 witnesses in the van with me that said, no, you did not. You came to a complete stop. Yeah. So the teenagers at the time were like, um, hey, Russell, you got to fight this man and all this other stuff. And so um, the minute the police officer pulled up, I said, guys, please be quiet. Everyone just be quiet. Yeah. 
First thing I did, I rolled down the windows. I stuck my hands out the window. Yeah. And um, and I said, you, and I told the teenagers, I said, DC, I'm presenting myself as safe immediately. Right. I am taking away any fear that he may possibly have. Yeah. The minute he approached the van, I said, first of all, officer, I'd like to thank you for serving. That was mm-hmm. number two. Mm-hmm. And um, and then after you know he he went back to his car, ran my license. He came back. He said, I'm not going to give you a ticket. You did not. Um, I saw that you ran through a, a stop sign and all this. And, and I said, sir, if I did, then I really apologize for that. And um, thank you for keeping our, sa- our street safe. And the teenagers, after I rolled up the window and everything else, they were, um, they were saying, man, you know, you, you could have argued that. You should have gotten, you should have said something. You should have gotten upset about that or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so my comment to them was, what good would have, what have that done? What mm-hmm. good at the moment would I have done by doing that? Yeah, I said I would have only pissed him off a little more. Mm-hmm. He would have um, probably been then argumentative and confrontational with me, which eventually I'm going to lose that argument regardless. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. and I and I I did tell them you never heard me acknowledge the fact that I I ran through it because I know I didn't, yeah. but I did at least acknowledge the fact that that's what he thought. Yeah, and so it was just really teaching them in that moment. Yeah. This is a teaching opportunity of how, first of all, you beat a ticket, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but also yeah. how do you how you present yourself is either going to make or break a situation. Yeah. So when you go into it already being hostile and defensive, you're only going to escalate it to make it where it's never going to be in your favor. Yeah. And so how can you create things that will then be in your favor? And so I use opportunities like that. As much as possible to teach our young people, even when we're out in public at a McDonald's and we see a police officer, yeah. I go up there and thank them in front of the kids, and that way the kids can then see it modeled up. Yeah, that's so good. And that's one of the things I love about you that I've learned from you and a uh, guy on my board, Brian Butler, uh, and just a few different people. Uh, one of my friends used the term quiet strength. Mm-hmm. Uh, in talking, you know, Josh Pearson from Pep Rally Inc. Mm-hmm. Um, he's married to a black woman and they have a, they have a, uh, mixed race. By the way, thank child. you for using the word black. I hate that word African-American. Do you? Oh, it's so bad. Okay. I just don't like it. Yeah. No, I understand. Yeah. Uh, so he was talking to me one day about his, about his kid and raising him and he knows, and he said, you know, I know there are things that he's going to face. He's going to have to deal with that I've never had to deal with mm-hmm. simply because he's mixed race uh, and he looks more black than white. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm trying to teach him and I'm trying to figure out the best way to teach him quiet strength. And what you just said, some would argue, well, you just bent over and took, took, the, took the hits on the back from mm-hmm. the police officer because you didn't stand up for yourself. And I converse that with like what Josh said about yeah you can argue mm-hmm. but where does that get you Who's, you know it, it like, gets me a record right it gets you a record and the interesting thing about that he said that he said you know I want to teach my son that there's a way that you can it, it, you don't have to you don't have to give in but mm-hmm. there's a way to to show strength without arguing and I feel like our natural reaction as humanity is if I'm going to show strength I've got to I've got to bow up. I've got to mm-hmm. be, I've got to be the bigger person, like physically bigger person. I've got to be the stronger person. I've got to throw the harder punch. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. And uh, sometimes it's the opposite. 
the more strength is humbling yourself, whether you're right or wrong. Even if you're in the, even if you're right, yeah. Saying, well, okay. If we're truly, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna apostolize this from yeah, If we're really, if we're truly to live like Christ, though, where did He do any of those things that mm-hmm. we often do? Mm-hmm. To live like Christ is to, is to say to the officer, um, "I love you first. Mm. and yeah. and show that love by the, your actions. And that's all I was doing in that moment was yeah. being Christ to the kids. And uh, I mean, take that take that even farther. The officer that uh, is the belligerent mm-hmm. is what my dad used to call the Barney Fife complex. Uh, is mistreating people in the, the control freak. Yeah, that person or that neighborhood saying, mm-hmm. "We love you anyway." Yeah. It, it it's it's a game changer. It yeah. really it really is because you can't fight love, and and I think that's the thing that really has to that's a great statement that we have to start doing more of is stop arguing about dumb stuff all the time. We're so defensive as a country. We're so defensive that we want our view to be heard. We want everything to be our way, and if it doesn't go our way, we were going to argue until it does. Right. We have become the most narcissistic people when it comes to that. Everything has to be our comfort zone. And if it's not, then damn well, I'm going to beat you in the head until it does become that way. Yeah. And we have got to start just saying, you know what? I'm going to start this conversation in love. Mm-hmm. And let's just go from there. And How, how, do, you do, how do you do that? Well... I'll, I'll give you a great example. The other day, I, I love... I stir up a lot of controversy on Facebook. I, I, <laughs> I really know. Do. I was party to it recently. Yeah, you just read my posts and God, <laughs> I just... I get called out all the time. And some of the, the angriest ones are, are a bunch of white males that just feel like that, that I'm attacking them and they're calling me race baiter and all the other stuff. And, and mm-hmm. good, good for them. But um, one of the things that I'll never forget, I just posted something recently where I asked... The, I had actually made the comment that white privilege is real in America and that we have got to stop denying it and stop burying our head in the, stand, in the sand because you have certain privileges that I will never have, Jason. Yeah. But the question is, how do you then use those privileges to help out other people who don't have that? And one young man, Eric, actually commented on the post and he said, he said, Russell, I have privileges, so what you're saying is now help me to, to show me how do I use it to help out? What do I do with this? Mm-hmm. To me, that right there is just that that open door. And he's the same age as me mm-hmm. of love saying, I want to learn to love better. Yeah. What would that mean for me as a white male to be able to love better in the inner city or yeah. people that are disenfranchised? Yeah. And I think that's the first question that everyone has to ask themselves, whether you're black, you're white or anything. What can I do? That will help my community to show the love to the police officer. What can they, how can they then? And then that, when you show that love, people are forced in a way to show it back, whether they want it or not. Yeah. It reminds me of a, it reminds me of a, uh, you know, classic Bible verse of to love your enemies and thereby will heap coals of, or hot coals on their head. That's correct. You know. And that's a, I love that statement you say you can't fight love. You can't. 
And it, it, it reminds me of like even in the 1960s when you had those demonstrators just standing there with a daisy and they would hand it to a police officer who was all pissed mm. off and had the shield and had their gun out, had the mace and everything else, and they were ready to tear gas that crowd. And that young, innocent girl walks up there with a daisy and just hands it over. Yeah. And immediately a police officer puts her gun down and just withdraws. Yeah. And and Beyonce showed it in her lately in her recent video, which really got a lot of people angry. Yeah. But where the young black kid starts putting his hands up, then he puts them down, and the police officers start doing that as well. Yeah. It was just uh, that it was kind of that same scene played out again, where um, if I'm demonstrating a peaceful, um, my body language is peaceful. Yours should be as well. Yeah. So here's the rub, I guess, with that is that love is risky. It is. Because that could get taken advantage of. You're loved, you know, either, I mean, it's probably all the way across the board, uh, you know, from a race standpoint, Mm -hmm. from a, uh, you're a sellout to, to, uh, to a police officer or police officer to a young black kid, whatever, uh, even in marriage Mm -hmm. or in a relationship, love is risky. And I guess to me, I guess that to me is a fascinating thing about, uh, you're, you're a Christian. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I am as well. And I think one of the things that fascinates me about the idea of God is that if you buy into what the Bible teaches about God and what Jesus did um, and giving man free will and all that kind of stuff, the riskiest thing of all is I know that they, I know that these people could turn on me at any moment mm-hmm. and they probably will. Yes. But I'm going to love them anyway. Yes. And when they do turn on me and they beat me savagely... I'm still going to love them. There's a danger in that. It really yeah. is. And but yet Jesus himself when he came to this earth, and this is Easter week, so it's a great time yeah. to talk about this. The only people he ever judged were the religious leaders who were the who who were doing things the wrong way. They were living they were by avoiding the risk. Exactly. They weren't living by the law. They were making up their own rules and everything else. Those are the only people in the entire Bible that he judged. Yeah. The harlot. He, he said, who's throwing stones at you now? I mean, everybody in there that was the worst, Zacchaeus, he said, come home with me. Mm-hmm. He didn't say go home and change yourself and become perfect and you right. have to have a Calvinistic view in order to come with me. Yeah. He just said, come home with me. Yeah. If we're really to love like that, mm-hmm. how much would our communities change? How much would everything change? We would love our neighbor unconditionally. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that's where we need to go back to healing our country. Donald Trump and presidents and people like that are dangerous only because they are speaking a message that is completely contrary to that. Mm. It is fear first, hate second, and paranoia third. And that's just... Yeah. And, and so what that's going to do is going to not create neighbors. It's going to create people who are always opening their blinds and cracking them and looking out there what's going on. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and we talked about that earlier. And in my opinion, I think most most of our political system, at least all the ones that are in it right now, I feel like they're all in their own way are starting with fear. They are. It all it all starts with fear on some level. You know, um, like we were talking about earlier, with Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, his fear is the fear of wealth and the the mm-hmm. rich white man, essentially. Uh, Hillary Clinton, her fear is maybe of. 
um, the world and the global view of us and how Benghazi yeah. and all of them are going to come. Then you have Donald Trump. Their fear is um, of Mexico and every, everybody is creating yeah. an image of fear. Right. And manipulation. Yeah. Which in my head doesn't, that only gets you so far. Yeah. I mean, it takes you, yeah, you can definitely, you can definitely rule. You can, like we were saying earlier, you can have strength through fear. Um, and you can be, you can be on top with the other person fearing you. I call So one thing I learned from Brian and Butler is the, uh, what's known as the Powell doctrine. Have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't. Colin Powell. So in the first Gulf war, uh, when we went into Iraq and all of that, mm-hmm. Colin Powell was one of the, one of the main guys with Schwarzkopf, mm-hmm. uh, putting together the plan and all that kind of stuff. And when they were going to go back in, and then the second Gulf War, when he was, uh, I believe, Secretary of State at the time, Mm -hmm. um, there's a thing known as the Powell Doctrine, that he wrote a plan of basically overwhelming force. Mm -hmm. You put so much, it's, you put so much force into an area, into a country, whatever it is, that that the opposing side has no choice but to concede mm-hmm. because it's so overwhelming. So if you're going to send troops in, don't just send a small unit in. They could probably take care of the job, but it'll take longer. Send them by send, thousands. Send and everything you can. Overwhelm them with so much in all in all directions. All they see mm-hmm. is is you. That they have to not fight because it's so overwhelming. Um, to me, and I, you know. From a, I'm not a war, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not a military. From a war standpoint, makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, from a law and order standpoint, makes sense. Um, I feel like in an everyday life, I feel like we do the same thing in trying to establish our footing, being the, the person in control of whatever situation. I'm going to put my overwhelming force into this situation so that they concede to me. Yes. Yes. We do that all the time. Yeah. We- and that to me is so fear-based because I think out of that is I have to be the one and I have to feel like I'm the one in control. Everyone has to look at me. Mm-hmm. And you see it all the time in politics. You see it in, um, I mean, Jesse Jackson does that. Al Sharpton does the same thing. Mm-hmm. It is, um, it, it literally, they tap into fear. Mm-hmm. And- yeah, you and I have talked about that before too. I mean, if if race relations really jumped forward and that was not an issue anymore mm-hmm. Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson would be out of a job they would they would so almost by nature they have to somewhat uh, perpetuate that idea so that they keep a job yes I think I think Martin Luther King would roll over in his grave with, with the things the tactics they do really and the fact that um, their hometown of Chicago, Illinois, where Jesse Jackson's headquarters are, leads the nation in the amount of black-on-black murders and crimes. But yeah, he's getting on a plane to tell us how to change our city when your own mm. backyard doesn't even look that great. So I think you better clean up your act in your own backyard before you move on to someone else's. That's yeah. why my passion is here in Tampa, and I need to clean up my backyard and clean up our community yeah. before I ever talk to any other city and tell them how to do it. Yeah, that's a great point. So, uh, in Tampa, so the interesting thing that we've talked about before from a race standpoint, uh, is you've experienced what I guess I would, I would probably term for lack of a better way of putting it kind of an un, unintended backhanded racism of, of sorts where, 
you know, instead of just straight out being blatantly racist, um, and sometimes out of a sense of I'm trying not to be racist, yeah. but I don't really know proper ways to say it, so yeah. it comes out as you're really you're really well spoken for a black guy. Um, yeah, or I <laughs> I had black friends when I was in college, or um, right, I used yeah. to work as a janitor where I had black guys with me, and yeah. so suddenly somehow that doesn't make that, that makes that okay. Yeah, and and I'm supposed to say, "Wow, well, thank you." I'm so happy. You know, it's just <laughs> and excuse me for saying that, but, yeah, <laughs> but it's just yeah. it, it it really just and it it is it, it's it's more of an ignorance than anything. And like yeah. I said. I have to look at them as that five-year-old at that moment or that six-year-old who's saying something that they just have no clue that this is not mm. acceptable. And so my way of dealing with that is, um, you know, um, I know what you're saying and I understand that you had some friends that, that you had were, that were black and everything else, but, um, but we're not all the same. And so I'm going to be different than them and just helping them to, to get a better understanding of that. Is really where where um, where some of the responsibility lies to me, because if I just allow them to keep getting away with that, then they're just going to continue to do that to more and more people mm-hmm. until I do confront them in love. Yeah, and a, a great example of that is um, when my wife and I first got married. We're an interracial couple, mm-hmm. and first of all, my family um, did not want that. They did not want me to marry a white woman, especially one that had three white kids. Really? Yes, because they grew up during the civil rights movement and they felt as though um, that white people were people that you could work with, but you never trust. Mm. You never completely trust. Because I remember my parents teaching me this as a kid, that um, you never have sex with a white woman because she will yell rape and get you in jail. Wow. That's exactly what I was told when I was going through my teenage puberty years is... Is wow. we don't want you dating a white woman because you will end up in jail. So that was my first introduction as well to um, wow. to that. And um, and yeah. so you got to remember a lot of those things are taught because during the 1950s and 60s and um, that was the norm. The Klan would lynch you mm-hmm. if you were even caught looking at a white woman. Yeah. And so my parents grew up with that. And um, and her family grew up with blacks are okay to maybe be a friend, but you never date them. You never marry them. That's what my wife's mm-hmm. family was. Wow. And so when we got married, we rocked both families. We both got disowned. <laughs> we both we both got cut off because of that. <laughs> and um, and I'll never forget her uncle Ron at the time was they were living in Fort Myers and. Um, my wife and I would go down there to visit them, and they actually came up, but he was very racist. The, our aunts even said, there's no way your Uncle Ron is going to allow this, and he's not going to like you at all. Mm. So I just started going there and just loving him unconditionally, and I would sit down with him, and I would ask him questions about his life. And I would ask him questions like, what was the best car you ever owned growing up? And I would ask him about the hard times that he had, and just get to know wow. him and engage in conversation with him. And before he died, he actually left me a lot of his personal artifacts because he even told his aunt, I mean, my aunt, that I had changed his view of what blacks were like and that he actually learned to love and accept me for where I was. But it it took me just sitting there and having open dialogue with him and open conversation. 
we go into conversation so often in our country with a hidden agenda. We go in there knowing what we want already that we're so unwilling to listen to people. Mm -hmm. And so the same way that I go into the cafeteria at schools and I approach teenagers is the same way I approach adults. I'll ask them things like, so if this table were a time machine, where would you want to go right now? And what's something you would want to show me from your life? And immediately gets adults talking about themselves. It gets them talking about their past and who they are. And it shows that you actively take an interest in them. Hmm. And you care about learning who they are. <clears throat> and once you learn who they are, that usually turns around to the next time you meet together. They want to know about you. Yeah. And wow. once you know about each other and where you're coming from and you both have a mutual understanding... Then it takes away those racial fears and biases that they had, and it creates an opportunity to grow a friendship. And that's what's happened with me and a guy who had said some very racist things. I mean, extremely racist to me. And, um, and one day I actually sat down. In fact, here's what he said. He said, um, all black people are lazy. All they want to do is sit around and play basketball all the time. And all those boys want to do is sag their pants down and they don't want to do a job or anything else. They just want to sit there and hustle and jive and shook, shook and jive and, and mm -hmm. shuck and jive. And he said this in a restaurant environment where several people heard this. Mm. The waitresses came up to me afterwards and they hugged me and they're like, oh my God, this does not represent our restaurant. We're so sorry. And this was right in South Tampa, probably yeah. about a year and a half ago. Yeah. Well, since then, I actually scheduled a time where him and I sat down together again at the same restaurant. Hmm. And, and I had an opportunity to tell him, you really hurt me by what you said. And I was hurt because of the fact that as a black male, I work hard to overcome all those stereotypes that are oftentimes cast upon us. But when you said that, it just put me back in the same position as they, and as everybody. Yeah. And that's not fair because we're not all like that. And so... Through that conversation, we started having some racial healing and he started going into his life story and I started listening and just hear him out. Mm -hmm. And then he had an opportunity to hear me and some healing began. Now, he still says some ignorant comments now and then, but at least we have a foundation and, and a respect for each other on a different level. Yeah. Maybe. Which I could have very easily had just said, I'm going to take off all my toys. I'm going to get yeah. out of here. And this man has never given him to my ministry financially. Yeah. So that's not what I'm here for. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't approach him just to try to say, hey, let's heal this so you can write me a $100,000 check. Right. He's never done that. Yeah. Nor have I ever asked him to. So I've had, I've had people in the past that would say... Well, there's no, I'm not going to go deal with that. I'm not going to go talk to that person because it doesn't matter because it's not going to change. They're not going to change their mind. So what's the point? They're, they're the roadblock then. Mm. That's the problem. They're the roadblock right there. If they already have that, especially if they're Christian, then shame on them. Hmm. If they're not, then I'll give a little more grace. But if you're yeah. a Christian and you already have that mindset, then what you are telling in a sense is you're saying, Jesus, you don't have the power to heal anybody but me. What a selfish attitude wow. that is. Hmm. Your attitude should be at that point, you know, God, I need to be a representative during this time. Yeah. And I need to make the move, the first move, whether I'm wrong or not. 
Yeah. I guess maybe me growing up with a narcissistic mom helped with that. But yeah. <laughs> because because she was never wrong. I was always wrong. But anyways. Yeah. Well, and I get yeah, and the and I understand again it goes back to what we were talking about of like that's a humbling of yourself. Yeah. And I feel like it, the goal I don't know that the goal should be I've got to change the other person's mind. I think the goal should no. be I'm just going to show them a better way. I'm just going to show them love regardless of what they said and what they yeah. did. Even if they don't change who they are. Let me tell you the biggest facilitator of love in a, um, in a mixed marriage are kids. Mm. And if we and, and remember in the Bible it says that if you are to love like a child when Jesus fought the kids near that we are to be more childlike. I think that's the thing that we forget. When we had our child together, my wife and I, and my son would just unconditionally run up to my parents and hug them and love them and care for them, that put all racism out of the window for them because Mm -hmm. that then suddenly became a child that loved unconditionally. Wow. If we love like we are all five years old, then we wouldn't have the issues that we have. Mm. But the problem is, is the older we get, the less we love. The, that's why yeah. I love going to Chamberlain High School and hanging around the special needs kids. Yeah. And the kids in the wheelchairs and the kids with Down syndrome because they are the greatest huggers and they don't give a crap about anything else. They just want to love and laugh. Yeah. I wish in a way that we were all special needs because they understand life more than we do. Yeah. They get it. Yeah. We don't understand it and we're trying to put on some, some act all the time. Yeah. Man. That's so true. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, last couple, we're going to wrap it up here in just a second, but last couple questions for you. Um, how are you not just angry all the time? <laughs> <laughs> um, cause I wouldn't blame you, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I get pissed off sometimes and I get home and I'm just like, I cannot believe this. And my wife will start trying to heal me immediately. And I'm like, honey, just be quiet, please. I don't want to hear I, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to be I, fixed in the moment. I invite. Uh, it's funny because I say that now my fiance. It's a weird thing to say. So me and my fiance, mm-hmm. I will jokingly say to her sometimes, uh, or she'll say to me, uh, "Don't don't come to me with your logic right now. I'm yeah. not I'm not looking for your logic in this situation." I, I get upset about it, but I also have to realize again. What keeps me from being pissed off is the fact that I put on my five-year-old glasses and I see everybody as a fifth, sixth grader, or a Mm five-year-old. And when I look at the world as that, then it just keeps me from being upset. Because you can't stay mad with a child forever. Yeah. I dare you to be around a five-year-old who does something wrong, and how long will it take until you overcome that? Right. Yeah. And if you start looking at everyone like that, they were everybody at one point was a young child. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Everybody, until their parents taught them racism, were not racist. Yeah. Everybody, until their worldview was changed by somebody close to them, loved unconditionally. Yeah. So we got to start looking at them more as that five-year-old who just got stuck. Mm-hmm. Or got changed and manipulated and, and bring them back to be a five-year-old who loves unconditionally. Yeah. Man. It's a great point. Um, so two more questions before we wrap it up one um, what kind of advice would you give to um, 
any, anyone really, either race, uh, when it comes to law enforcement, police side, non-police side, uh, to just forge a better way. They're just kids with guns. Hmm. Love them unconditionally. <clears throat> Forgive them. Give grace. And move on. Hmm. They're just kids with the guns. Everyone makes mistakes. Yeah. We're, we're quick to forgive a child in our society. You know what's interesting about that? You, may, you put it in those terms too is, I mean, if you think about it, that's a figurative thing as well. Not, it's literal sometimes that they are just kids with guns, but it's figurative too. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, people that are angry. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just a kid with a verbal gun. Exactly. That's it. Donald Trump is a big kid with a gun. Wow. And and until people, until he has never been shown unconditional love. So how can he love what he hasn't been shown? People, he puts up a rough exterior and a bulldog appearance. But I guarantee you, once you get through to that, and if you were to love him unconditionally, you would see that wall just go straight down. Yeah. Yeah, man. Have you uh, have you ever seen the movie Fight Club? No, I have not. So, uh, fascinating movie, fascinating uh, story that was written. Um, there's a point in, so the whole premise of the movie is like, you know, he's in this fight club. He's this, you know, middle class American male, typical job, cubicle, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And he ends up in this fight club where he can get his aggression out. Mm-hmm. He's traveling all the time for work. And at one point he says uh, in the movie, he says of himself... Uh, I'm a 30 year old boy mm-hmm. talking about I'm, I'm 30 years old but I'm a, I'm a little kid I'm a little boy as a, that's in a 30 year old body body uh, and kind of in reference to his he's you know I don't really know how to be an adult I've never I've never really grown up I've never matured yeah. uh, physically I have but I'm but I'm a boy Mm-hmm. I'm a 30 year old boy um, I think it happens to, it probably happens to a lot of people that's probably most of us I think we do and I think that's one of the things that really helps me to also stay grounded <clears throat> is when I work around young people you stay young and yeah. so I don't even think of myself as a 46 year old man yeah I really, I'm always looking at things through the eyes of a child and, and it, it's, a, it's a good thing yeah. because it, it helps me to see things different in life yeah. It helps me see conflict and anger and aggression is different than yeah. um, a lot of other people do. Yeah. Man. So, uh, last question. Something I ask, I, I always ask of every, uh, every guest on the podcast is, um, from your perspective, do you feel like every human being has the ability to boldly go pursue the thing that they... Uh, that they love, the opportunity that they want to go after. Do you feel like every person has that capacity and opportunity to do that? Yes. Yes. But they have to have somebody around them that can challenge them and help them to identify it in the first place. Mm. Because oftentimes, what happens in our society is we're the biggest haters. So we're so quick to tell somebody what they can't do. But we never allow them the creativity and the and, um, and a thousand mile view to see things different. 
And I, and, and I guarantee if you talk to a lot of business people and businessmen that are making a lot of money and others, they're just miserable where they're at. They don't like it. They don't, they'd rather yeah. be out teaching a classroom at a high school or doing something different. Yeah. But nobody has ever encouraged them or inspired them to do anything but what they're doing now. Yeah. Man. That's great. That's a great answer. That's awesome. So I love having you around, man. You always challenge me. Well, thank thinking. you. Uh, so to wrap it up, uh, uh, my last question is always to the listener. Um, one part of the reason I want them to hear stories like yours, as I said earlier, is I want them to feel inspired and to find here an everyday story of someone that is doing, is boldly going, is pursuing their dream or uh, whatever in hopes of them listening and going, you know what, if he can do it, I can do it. Or if she can do it, I can take that step. And so my final question always to the listener is what can you do this week? Uh, because I feel like this is the difference. You can hear a story and you can either look at it as, um, well, good for them. I'll never, mm-hmm. I can't do that. Or you can look at it as, okay, I can take a step this week. And to put it in context of what you said, basically, what what's one thing you can do this week to boldly go? And it doesn't have to, and I, I think back to the conversation we were saying earlier, is I think when we have those debates or we have those conversations with someone, we want at the outset, we want the we want to end the conversation with them, with everything fixed, mm-hmm. and that's not how it works. Like some things are one step at a time, and so when it comes to boldly going and accomplishing or pursuing that passion, pursuing that dream, you don't have to accomplish the whole thing this week. But what's one thing you can do this week to take that step, take the first step to writing that, writing that novel or that book that you want to write, that art piece that you want to do, changing careers. Whatever the thing is, what's one thing you can do this week? And I'll put it in, in terms of what Russell said. What's one thing you can do this week uh, to show love to someone different than you? Boldly go and show love to someone with a different opinion, a different uh, skin color, different background. What can you do this week? What's one thing you can do? Um, cool. Russell, thanks for being on the podcast. We're going to have to have a part two because uh, th- there's so much more of this we can oh, talk yeah. about. So we'll... Uh, we'll definitely have you back on. Maybe I'll go into my life growing up as special needs classrooms. That's a whole different thing. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but definitely. So, Russell, thanks, man. Thanks for being on the podcast. Everybody's done. Friends through eternity.